Great, so let's uh, think uh, about arguing for God, or the, the topic that would be more technically called natural theology. According to the atheist biologist Jerry Coyne, what most atheists believe is that there is no good reason to believe in God. The atheist writer Christopher Hitchens said, I think we can say with reasonable certainty that there is no God because all the hypotheses, i.e. all the arguments for it, have been exploded or abandoned. Well, even if so, at best, wouldn't that justify agnosticism, being uncertain about whether or not there was a God, rather than atheism, the belief that there is not a God? And if you don't define things that way, you find strange things like this table is an atheist because it doesn't believe that there's a God, or <laughs> and so on. So you've got to make this uh, room for the category of agnosticism. But in any case, this isn't true. There are, I think at least, uh, good reasons to believe in God. And while many people find at least some arguments for God persuasive, it is true, as philosopher W.J. Wood observes, that most of our considered judgments about, about everything, really, uh, and our reasonable beliefs about most subjects are held on the basis of reasons we find convincing, but not coercive. Convincing, but not coercive. If you're trying to find a coercive argument for belief in God, you're setting a very high, philosophically abnormal standard for success, in other words. The project of natural theology, which Keith Yandel defined as the attempt to provide good reasons for thinking that God exists, goes back at least as far as the ancient Greeks. Natural theology flourished famously within medieval scholastic philosophy. Perhaps the most famous example would be Thomas Aquinas's summary of his five ways to argue for God in his 13th century textbook, Summa Theologica, uh, i.e. summary of theology. And in the Enlightenment era, natural theology was championed by scholars like René Descartes, Isaac Newton, William Paley, Thomas Reed, but called into question, at least in some senses, by scholars like David Hume and Immanuel Kant. And natural philosophy certainly became unfashionable between the early 19th and mid 20th centuries. Here's a famous cover of Time magazine from America with the, the red uh, legend on the front there, Is God Dead? This was from uh, April the 8th, 1966. This uh, unfashionable nature of arguing for God was under an accumulation of influences, I think, including thinking of folks like Hume and Kant, and Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley, so-called liberal theology, uh, the theology of Karl Barth, um, the two world wars that happened, and the logical positivist movement 
to focus on the, the latter there, according to the so-called verification principle advanced by the logical positivist movement in the 1930s, the, the meaningfulness, the sense-makingness, the meaningfulness of any statement that's not just true by definition, i.e. Um, a square has four sides, the meaningfulness of any statement that's not just true by definition like that depends on its ability to be empirically verified, at least in principle. For example, uh, my mug has coffee in it is a meaningful statement on this philosophy uh, because you can empirically verify it by seeing, touching, smelling and tasting the coffee. But God exists is supposedly a meaningless statement because it's not true by definition, supposedly, and you can't, supposedly, empirically verify it. You can't certainly directly see, touch, smell, taste God. As A.J. Eyre, who most famously uh, propagated this philosophy uh, in Britain, he was an Oxford philosopher, uh, in his 1936 book, Language, Truth and Logic, uh, this is kind of a good summary statement of his position, he says, God is a metaphysical term, and if God is a metaphysical term, then it cannot even be probable that a God exists. For to say that God exists is to make a metaphysical utterance which cannot be either true or false. Note also that saying atheism is true would be a metaphysical statement that is not true or false on this. If a putative proposition fails to satisfy the verification principle and it's not a tautology, then it's metaphysical and being metaphysical it's neither true nor false but literally senseless. It's like nonsense poetry at best. Now, there are a number of problems with this verificationist philosophy, although it still continues to be influential amongst some people's thinking even to today. Particularly, you'll find this kind of thinking within the new atheist movement. Verificationism didn't shoulder the burden of proof needed to overturn atheist philosopher Carl Nielsen's common sense observation that most claims that people make are not scientific, empirical in that sense, yet they can, for all that, be true or false. Any plausible theory of meaning needs to accommodate, surely, metaphysical statements like rainbows are beautiful, mass murder is wrong, the law of non-contradiction is true. The main problem facing verificationism is that it contradicts itself. The verification principle is neither true by definition nor something that can be empirically verified. Even A.J. Eyre ended up rejecting verificationism in the end. And although one cannot directly verify God's existence, several arguments for theism can be framed using the same sort of indirect verificationism used in science. 
Um, Basil Mitchell, uh, another influential Oxford philosopher but a Christian, uh, said that the logical positivist movement started as an attempt to make a clear demarcation, a separation between science and common sense on the one hand and metaphysics and theology on the other. But work in the philosophy of science convinced people that what the logical positivists had said about science was not true. And by the time the philosophers of science had developed and amplified their accounts of how rationality works in science, people discovered that similar accounts applied equally well to the areas which they had previously sought to exclude, namely theology and metaphysics. So as William Lane Craig says, the collapse of verificationism during the second half of the 20th century was undoubtedly the most important philosophical event of the century. Its demise brought about a resurgence of metaphysics in philosophy, along with other traditional problems of philosophy that had been hitherto suppressed. Accompanying this resurgence has come something new and altogether unanticipated, a renaissance in Christian philosophy, including natural theology. Scientific discoveries beginning in the 1950s revealed the the complex information processing systems and intricate molecular machinery within cells, reviving discussions about design in biology. A series of scientific discoveries culminating in the 1960s established the, the Big Bang theory in cosmology overturning the ancient pagan belief that the cosmos exists eternally and rejuvenating discussion of Kalam-type cosmological arguments. And alongside Big Bang cosmology, scientists uncovered a a life-permitting cosmic so-called fine-tuning that again invited discussions about design, this time within cosmology. After the the rise and fall of the positivist movement uh, within analytical philosophy, philosophical thinking about God became fashionable again, due largely to the 1967 publication of Alvin Plantinga's book, God and Other Minds. Uh, News of God's death was premature. As the Mark Twain, I think it was, joke goes, news of my death is premature. Uh, Here's a cover of Time magazine again from 1969. Is God coming back to life? Plantinga kick-started the the philosophical re-evaluation of natural theology with his 1974 book, The Nature of Necessity, by laying out a logically valid version of the ontological argument. So as Craig says, the last half century has witnessed a a remarkable resurgence of interest in natural theology, including so-called ramified natural theology. This is uh, a name uh, coined by the Oxford philosopher, Christian philosopher Richard Swinburne, what he calls ramified natural theology, that is an expanded, more varied type of natural theology than the traditional um, conception of natural theology 
which highlights the fact that so-called Christian evidences, say the argument for Jesus' resurrection, um, the trilemma argument for the deity of Christ, uh, arguments about fulfilled biblical prophecy, those arguments don't just round out the case for generic theism with reasons to believe in the Christian God, but those arguments can work as arguments for God in their own right, uh, especially as part of a sort of cumulative case argument. Christian evidences that might feature in a ramified natural theology often make an argument to the best explanation type argument on the basis of historically established data um, about Jesus, for example. So as James Brent says, natural theology today is practiced with a degree of diversity and confidence unprecedented since the late Middle Ages. And here's a selection of uh, rather chunky recent books, uh, most of them being collections of, of papers in natural theology. Now, formal um, theistic arguments are generally, I think, a trade-off between accessibility and robustness. This is a kind of tightrope you walk in making presentations of these arguments. Uh, a trade-off between accessibility in terms of brevity, of being intuitively convincing to people, of having a lack of dependence upon needing specialised knowledge in order to grasp the argument, and robustness in terms of, say, explicit logical validity, of dependence upon specialised knowledge in order to be able to grasp the strength of the argument, and so on. So, at the kind of extremes of this, on, on one hand here, I've got a photograph of a peacock, Right, you just show that to an audience. On the other hand, I have in the full panoply of modal logic Alvin Plantinga's ontological argument. Right? Now, the photograph of the peacock might actually be convincing intuitively to a lot of people as an argument for the existence of some kind of a god. That's a very accessible argument, although it's not formally an argument for God. I could make arguments formally from things to do with the peacock, but on the other hand, the Plantingan modal ontological argument here is formally definitely logically valid and so on. It's much more robust in that sense. It's a formal argument, but that's going to be a lot less intuitively convincing to most audiences, right? Um, but as I say, these are kind of extremes. When presenting to uh, general audiences, at least, you're kind of walking a tightrope between these two extremes. You want to be as accessible as possible, whilst also being robust to uh, uh, a sufficient degree, um, as the occasion demands. Most theistic arguments, again, I think, try to formalise and so rationally motivate the recognition of relationships between God and creation, where 
each relationship that you can uncover and formalize adds to the picture of God that you're building up in a cumulative case. Hence, there's a relationship between natural theology um, the philosophical exploration of theistic arguments and philosophical theology, which includes the philosophical exploration of our concept of God and his qualities. Now, many of those relationships that these arguments try to uncover are kind of intuitively perceived as obvious or at least plausible by maybe most people actually. Um, here's some, some statistics and some very interesting um, statistics here from 2017 drilling down more particularly into questioning the religious beliefs of people who self-declare as atheists or agnostics and you'll, you'll see here that amongst uh, atheists 18% in this survey said that they believed in the existence of some kind of higher power or spiritual force. And amongst agnostics, 3% uh, of self-declared agnostics said they believed in God as described in the Bible. And that 62% of them believed in a higher power or spiritual force. And so so uh, the way in which ordinary people in the street, as it were, use these philosophical labels is not necessarily in line with the way we think they ought to use them. Uh, when we question them more more precisely, and that's that's interesting that there's there is this sort of general perception of at least something transcendent and spiritual, um, something maybe like a god of some kind, and so on. Uh, the Roman orator Cicero. Uh, wrote, what could be more clear and obvious when we look up at the sky and contemplate the heavens than that there is some divinity, some divinity of superior intelligence? Some philosophers would argue that such intuitive perceptions are basic beliefs grounded in experience and that this means they are reasonable to accept in the absence of sufficient counter-evidence. This is really a question about who has the burden of proof uh, relative to the situation. As J.P. Morland and William Lane Craig write, in philosophy, intuitions play a very important part. Intuitions are not infallible, but they are, Latin here, prima facie, on the face of it, at first glance, justified. That is, if one carefully reflects on something and a certain viewpoint intuitively seems to be true, then one is justified in believing that viewpoint in the absence of overriding counter-arguments. And of course, any counter-arguments will ultimately, ultimately rely upon alternative intuition, set of intuitions. Because, of course, it's literally impossible to argue for everything that you believe. Right? You've got to start from somewhere in order to argue to anything. Now, theistic arguments tend to come in families that deal with the same general theme. So there's actually no such thing as 
the cosmological argument, the ontological argument, and so on. There are families of arguments um, take different themes, such as causality in the cosmological case. Uh, so the cosmological family of theistic arguments claim to make clear the existence of various types of relationship between the existence of non-divine realities and the existence of God. And you think here of the, the Kalam-type argument from the uh, Islamic tradition, the Thomistic-type arguments, the Leibnizian-type arguments, and so on. Uh, again, I put book, book covers of useful sources as we're flashing through here for a sort of overview, or um, Bill Craig's The Cosmological Argument from Plato to Leibniz, or um, an up-to-date expression of a particular type of cosmological argument from Joshua Rasmussen's um, The Bridge of Reason. So let me uh, express a cosmological argument the way I quite like doing it with audiences. Suppose I ask you to loan me a book. Can I borrow a book? And you say to me, well, I don't have a copy of that book right now, but I'll ask my friend to lend me his copy, and then I'll lend it to you. Okay. Well, suppose your friend says the same thing to you, and so on, infinitely. Well, two things should hopefully be clear. First, if the process of asking to borrow the book just goes on and on ad infinitum, well, I'll never get the book from you. <laughs> Secondly, if I get the book from you, the process that led to me getting it can't have gone on ad infinitum. Somewhere down the line of requests to borrow the book, someone had to have had the book without having to borrow it. Right? Now, in this analogy, if we equate having or getting the book with existing, you'll see the application. Likewise, argues philosopher Richard Pertill, consider any contingent or dependent reality, such as any physical thing or event. He says the same two principles apply. If the process of everything getting its existence from something else went on to infinity, then the thing in question would never have existence. And if the thing has existence, then the process hasn't gone on to infinity. There was something that had existence without having to receive it from something else. So there was something that just had existence, something non-contingent or non-dependent. So as philosopher Dallas Willard argued, the dependent character of all physical states, together with the completeness of the series of dependencies underlying the existence of any given physical state, logically implies at least one self-existent and therefore non-physical state of being. 
Now, that argument doesn't give you everything that philosophical theology would want to talk about in terms of God's nature and character, right? But it does directly contradict a naturalistic view of existence. It does directly contradict a materialistic uh, view uh, of existence. Um, and it gives, you, it gives you part of the picture of what we traditionally mean by God. And you may be able to unpack further qualities by thinking about that argument and conclusion, conclusion further. Uh, the design or teleological family of theistic arguments claim to make clear the existence of relationships between the structure of various non-divine realities in God. So that's not the mere existence, but the structure of those realities. Um, think about cosmic fine-tuning, which I mentioned earlier. As Craig says, scientists have discovered that the, the existence of or an intelligent life, or life at all, of anything complex really, uh, depends upon a, a complex that is unlikely and delicate balance of initial conditions given in the Big Bang itself. These preconditions fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of life permitting, allowing values. For example, uh, a change in the strength of the atomic weak force by one part in 10 to the power of 100 would have prevented a life-permitting universe. The cosmological constant that drives the inflation of the universe as it expands is fine-tuned to around one part in, 100, in 10 to the power of 120. The odds of the Big Bang's low entropy condition existing just by chance from the beginning are on the order of 1 out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Now, if you're not familiar with writing numbers in terms of powers of, basically, let me put it like this. Uh, as a rough estimate, there are about 10 to the power of 80 fundamental particles in the observable universe. So all of those three numbers that I've just read out are literally impossible to write down longhand if you tried to write a zero on every fundamental, par fundamental particle in the observable universe, right? And when you're doing um, probability calculations, of course, you, you don't add these numbers, you multiply them together. So the overall improbability of just these three factors would be one part in 10 to the power of 100, number bigger than you can write down, multiplied by 1 part in 10 to the 120, multiplied by, etc. So when I say that the, the, the precision of the fine-tuning here we're talking about is literally beyond astronomical, I'm being literal. <laughs> Craig observes that to detect design, in addition to high improbability, there also needs to be conformity to an independently given pattern. It is not enough just to point at something and say, that event or pattern or whatever is really, really improbable, therefore it must have been designed. That won't hack it. But if you get really, really improbable plus this thing exhibits an independently given pattern, 
then that is a good indicator of design. As Craig says, when these two elements are present, we have what's called specified complexity unlikeliness, which is the tip-off to intelligent design. Um, best to grasp this by concrete examples. So here's Craig's example. In a poker game, any deal of cards, any particular deal of the cards, is equally and pretty highly improbable. But it's, you know, one arrangement of all the cards of that length, all the hands of that length, out of all the possible hands of that length, right? But all those deals, hands of cards, are equally improbable, yeah? So it's not enough to point at a hand of cards and say, oh, look, that's pretty improbable. It must have been designed. You're cheating. That doesn't cut it. But as Craig says, if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, then you can bet this is not the result of chance, but of design. Not only is he getting an unlikely arrangement of cards, but he is getting one of the few arrangements of cards that pretty much guarantees he's going to keep consistently winning <laughs> at the game. Um, and he can't allay our suspicions that he's cheating because he keeps winning and getting the winning cards every time he's in charge of dealing the cards. He can't say, oh look, any hand of cards is equally as improbable as any other. As Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking put it, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. So that very special and highly improbable, that is specified complexity. So what we can really argue here is, one, the fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity. Two, things exhibiting specified complexity are probably the result of design, from which it follows, deductively three, that therefore the fine-tuning of the universe was probably designed. The, the main key objection you'd come across to that design argument uh, as expressed here by Richard Dawkins when he, he um, summons the, the image of the multiverse. He says there are, there are billions of universes having different laws and constants. You could only find ourselves in one of the minority of universes whose laws and constants happen to be propitious, i.e. I, happen to allow our evolution. So, of course, you know, it's not surprising that we find ourselves in a universe that allows for our existence. Well, no, of course it's not. But he's also saying it's not surprising that there exists a universe that allows for our existence because there are a whole lot of different universes with all sorts of different conditions in them. There's a whole lot of card games going on. And so, by chance, it's not too surprising that sometimes, in, in a few of them, people keep getting all four aces, right? If there are enough card games going on, that would, that would make that specified pattern of quad aces not complex, not all that unlikely, because you've got lots more chances of getting that pattern, yeah? So he's really objecting to premise one, the many-universe objection denies premise one of that fine-tuning argument 
by hypothesizing the existence of an infinite or at least very large multiverse of differently tuned universes. Give ourselves lots more throws of the dice, if you like. So the objection really is this, premise one, if there were enough different universes, then the specified structure of our universe wouldn't be complex enough to justify a design inference. Premise two, there are enough different universes. Conclusion, therefore the fine-tuning of our universe does not justify a design inference. Now I've got premise two flashing away here because this is, this is the key problem. Um, the claim that there are enough different universes. I mean, sure, if X many monkeys existed, then they could type the plays of Henrik Ibsen by chance, if you furnish them with enough typewriters and sheets of paper and so on. But look, anyone faced with the many monkeys hypothesis as a serious explanation for um, a volume of the complete works of Ibsen, uh, will ask themselves if there's any independent reason to believe in the existence of X number of monkeys with said typewriters. If not, in the absence of independent evidence of the existence of X number of monkeys, they're going to favour the one author hypothesis. Same thing applies to the fine-tuning and the multiverse argument dialogue. Now, as astrophysicist Adam Frank says, um, and this is from a February 2022 uh, article, he says, there is no empirically grounded scientific reason to believe there is such a thing as a multiverse of parallel realities. So Dawkins invoking the multiverse when he says, there are billions, uh, what he should be saying is, well, maybe there are. One can imagine that there are. Well, okay, but so what? <laughs> For his argument to go through, as we see, he needs premise two that was flashing away there. There are enough. And that's something he needs to actually argue for. Moreover, as agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis uh, writes in his book, uh, The Goldilocks Enigma, you know, why is the universe just right for life? Like Goldilocks, the porridge she came across was, one was too hot, one was too cold, and one was just right for eating. Davis says, uh, multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level from universe to multiverse. There has to be a, what turns out to be finely tuned, universe generating mechanism to produce all of these differently tuned universes. But the mechanism that produces differently tuned universes has to be fine-tuned. Why does it produce differently tuned universes rather than just photocopying the same life-prohibiting universe again and again and again, or, and so on? The multiverse theory, says Davis, cannot provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life. But even if we bend over backwards and grant the existence of a multiverse, philosopher Michael Rocha 
for example, would argue that our evidence supports the designer whether or not we're in a multiverse because a theistic multiverse, a multiverse created by a god, is a possibility. And a theistic multiverse would likely contain a higher proportion of life-permitting universes than would an atheistic multiverse. If you think, if you buy that premise, then you would you could say that our relevant evidence is more to be expected on a theistic multiverse hypothesis than on an atheistic multiverse hypothesis. So even if there were evidence of a multiverse, the, the debate would not be finished. There'd still be further arguments to be had about what um, that implied. Uh, the axiological family of theistic arguments claim to make clear the existence of relationships between the value, axiology is the philosophy of value, of various non-divine realities and God. Um, particularly famous in this area would be moral values, but also interesting to think about aesthetic values, about beauty as well as goodness. So, but let's focus on the traditional um, meta-ethical moral argument. So um, one starts off with the observation that moral values, duties and so on, are things that are either objective or subjective. They're either objective facts that are independent of and thus discovered by humans, or they're subjective. They're dependent on and thus relative to humans. They're invented by us, but not discovered by us. They've got to be one or the other. If you grant premise one that objective moral values exist, combine that with premise two that the existence of objective moral values entails the existence of a god, that is a, a transcendent, holy, good, personal reality of some kind, you can deduce the conclusion that therefore a god exists. Again, not the whole picture of god within Christian theology, but an important slice of the pie, as it were. Well, as the atheist philosopher Russ Schaefer-Landau argues, some moral views are true, others false, and my thinking them, true or false, doesn't make them so. Because individuals and whole societies can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality. The best explanation of this he says, is that there are moral standards not of our making. How come we can, be, we can get morality wrong? Well, how could you get it wrong if it's something that depends on you and you invent? You know, it's not something you discover. If you can get it wrong, it, that's because it's something you can discover, and on this occasion, you have failed to discover it. <laughs> So there are plenty of atheist philosophers who will argue for the truth of moral objectivism, right? The problem with that, from an atheistic viewpoint though, is that objective moral value seems to require a moral ideal. 
that prescribes behaviour. It's not merely descriptive, it's prescriptive. Uh, that morality obligates our behaviour uh, and is something before which we appropriately feel guilty when we fail to behave in the prescribed, obligated way. But an idea, or an ideal, or a character exhibiting an ideal seems to require a, a, a mind. Uh, a prescription would seem to require a prescriber. Uh, an obligation, the notion of obligation, the notion of guilt, both seem to require someone to obligate us and before whom to be guilty. I can't be obligated by the evolutionary history of my species or by this laptop or you know it's not a personal reality. So granting the objective reality of moral values and duties seems to put us on a road to recognizing the existence of some sort of transcendent personal mind-like reality uh, that has a good character um, and so on. Well, atheist Michael Ruse in his recent uh, book Atheism, What Everyone Needs to Know, says this, whatever else morality might be, it is not just an emotion or a preference. Stomping on little babies for fun is wrong even if the whole world thinks otherwise. He's saying it's objective. The question then is, where does the objectivity of morality lie? He says natural solutions don't seem to be the answer, for some of the reasons we've explained. He says Platonism, Platonist solutions don't seem to be the answer. Is God the default position, he asks. And then on the next page he says, the objectivity of morality is an illusion put in place by our genes to keep us social. This is the world of non-belief and such are the consequences. Seems to do a bit of a U-turn uh, there, but okay, he's, he's in a long tradition of atheist philosophers who argue that actually Given an atheistic worldview, a worldview without a God, you have to give up the notion that morality is an objective, discoverable thing and come to terms with the fact that there are no objective values. It's all subjective and relative, and made up by us, cultural relativism and, and so on, foisted on us by our genes to make us social, but, you know, okay. The fact that behaving in a certain way was useful to the spread of genes in a particular environment several million years ago, that doesn't really obligate me to behave in any particular way here and now, right? <laughs> this is following in the footsteps of the famous Oxford atheist J.L. Mackey. Um, this was a signed reading back in the day when I studied philosophy first off at Cardiff Uni. Uh, Mackey argued that objective values make the existence of a god more probable than it would have been without them. Thus we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of God. But he is an atheist, so here's what he does with that, because that's obviously a problem. 
He says, if we adopted instead a subjectivist account of morality, this problem would not arise. I've solved the problem. And he wrote a book, a famous book called Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong, which was also on my curriculum back then. So, problem solved. But it seems to me the question to ask is, okay, which is the bigger problem here? Having to admit that there's some kind of a good transcendent personal reality, or having to think that morality is subjective? Not being able to say stomping on babies for fun is wrong is a true statement. Now, I know which seems more problematic to me, but you know, you pays your money, you takes your choice. This is, arguments are not coercive, right? If you're prepared to say, yep, nihilism is true, there are, there are no objective values, everything's subjective, nothing is meaningful in that sense, right, objectively speaking, then you can escape this argument if you're prepared to pay that price tag. That's what arguments try and do. They try and price particular views out of your worldview market, if you want to put it in economic terms. But as atheist Peter Cave says, whatever sceptical arguments may be brought against our belief that killing the innocent is morally wrong, objectively speaking, we are more certain that the killing is morally wrong than that the argument for moral subjectivism is sound. Torturing an innocent child for the sheer fun of it is morally wrong. Full stop. I agree. Um, good rhetorical advice here. Always quote an atheist when you can agree with them. Right. It forestalls the audience saying, oh yeah, well, well they would say that, wouldn't they? Because they're on your side. Kind of, yeah. So uh, this is my favourite sort of summary expression of that kind of moral argument. This comes from H.P. Owen, uh, Hugh Parry Owen, a Welsh philosopher. He says, on the one hand, objective moral claims transcend every human person. On the other hand, it's contradictory to assert that impersonal, non-personal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. The only solution to this paradox is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God. Now, apart from denying the premise that there are objective values and duties and so on, I think the main objection to the moral argument is the so-called euthyphro uh, dilemma from Plato's euthyphro dialogue in which Socrates asks, is what, holy, is what is holy, holy because the gods approve it, or do they approve it because it's holy? Is what is holy, holy because the gods approve it, and it wouldn't be otherwise, or do they approve it because it is holy? The Posing that question of a, of a monotheistic worldview poses a dilemma. Are God's commands, moral commands, arbitrary? Or is there some standard of goodness independent of God's commands to which his commands must conform in order to be good? Right? 
Now, we either ground morality in God's commands or not. If we ground them in God's commands, morality becomes arbitrary. Things are good only because God commands it, and it could have commanded the opposite. It could have been the case that mass murder and rape is great if God had commanded it, but he didn't. You know, It's just arbitrary. That doesn't seem a very satisfactory account of morality, right? On the other hand, if we don't ground morality in God's commands, morality must be independent of God. Hang on a minute. Hang on. Why have I put that in red at the end there? Well, because that doesn't follow, does it? That's just a non sequitur conclusion that doesn't follow from the premises that went before. Um, morality must be independent of God if it's not grounded in God's commands. That doesn't follow. Um, this is what follows. If we don't ground morality in God's commands, morality must be independent of God's commands. Now, you may notice that there is more to God than his commands. <laughs> right? So, the objection, you think so, uh, the objection here equivocates, it's ambiguous, it equivocates between independent of God's commands and independent of God. Moral values and duties can be independent of God's commands without being independent of God. For example, by being part and parcel of God's character, or based in God's character. Note, again, I've highlighted just part of the same quote from Owen. The conclusion that Owen drew was that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God. In line with which, of course, God necessarily, in line with which, is being consistent with himself, will issue commands. His commands will be consistent with his character. Um, you might appeal to the fact that God has commanded something to explain the prescriptive nature of what we experience in morality. But the objectivity of the, the moral claim is not to be explained by the mere fact that God has commanded it, but by the fact that God, who has a necessarily good character, has commanded it. Now, as Plantinga says, there's a far broader range. How am I doing on time here? We, we can just, uh, it's good. Uh, okay. Yeah. There's a far broader range of theistic arguments than most people realise, and I'll just finish by looking at one last category. Indeed, Plantinga himself once presented a paper outlining a couple of dozen or so theistic arguments. And that paper inspired a, a, the recent book, a conference that then became a book, uh, Two Dozen or So Arguments for God, which covers actually 29 separate theistic arguments. Okay. Few, for example, I would wager, have heard of the argument from desire, AFD. Uh, a family of arguments that seek to move from an analysis of various, what I call, existentially relevant human desires to theism. 
C.S. Lewis is probably the most famous proponent of this argument. He presented the AFD in a variety of different rhetorical forms, including autobiography and sermon and apologetics. I myself have defended five basic forms of the AFD, uh, prima facie, abductive, deductive, inductive and reductio, forms of the argument that jointly constitute a cumulative case argument from desire. Um, I highlight here the, the book C.S. Lewis's Christian Apologetics, um, edited by Gregory Basham, which is the series of debates over arguments that C.S. Lewis made famous. And um, the debate in that book on the argument from desire is between myself defending it and um, Gregory Basham uh, critiquing. Lewis used the terms uh, romantic and joy, famously, uh, to name uh, the experience of feeling drawn to a transcendent, innately desirable something more beyond one's worldly grasp. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, Lewis famously described his quest to understand what he called an unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. Joy, if you like, is a mystical experience, which writers in the German Romantic tradition called Zenzucht, if I've mangled that, I apologise, but Zenzucht, uh, occasioned but left unsatisfied by its worldly triggers. And those triggers are often can be person-dependent, but often have to do with beauty or natural grandeur, what the Romantics would have called the sublime, right? Joy isn't a desire for the worldly objects that occasion or trigger it, in as much as those objects don't satisfy the longing they occasion. Thus, says Lewis, we remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness that the world gives us will satisfy. Um, in innate desires is often a focus of these arguments um, and if you want a definition we could say that innate desires are persistently reoccurring desires for apparently coherent ends that properly functioning members of a natural kind are either born with or with a natural tendency to kind of spontaneously develop and those desires are consequently very widespread regardless of historical era, age, gender, class, education, and so on. They tend to be enshrined in ling linguistically recognised states of satisfaction and deprivation in particular. Uh, and they are manifested in cross-cultural artistic themes. Uh, so Corbin Scott Carnell in his study Bright Shadow of Reality uh, says that Zeinzucht may be said to represent just as much a basic theme in literature as love. But even if we set aside the distinction often played upon in these arguments between innate and non-innate desires, it seems to me that we should simply give every desire the presumption of having a fulfilment until shown otherwise. I think that's where the burden of proof should lie. You should say, I've got, I seem to have, you know, I've got this desire that seems to be for, for X, so I can probably fulfil that desire and, and until there's reason to think that actually, no, you can't. So here's an abductive AFD, and then I'll give a reductio and then some closing remarks. 
Victor Reppert, uh, scholar who's written in a, a number of important things on, on C.S. Lewis. He says that on Christian theism, God's intention in creating humans is to fit them for eternity in God's presence. As such, it stands to reason that we should find ourselves dissatisfied with worldly satisfactions. Now, I wouldn't say that such desires couldn't possibly arise in an atheistic world. But how likely would they arise in such a world? So long as the answer is less likely than in a theistic world, the presence of these desires confirms his evidence for theism, even if only a little bit. Now, the main reply to this kind of argument would appeal to a naturalistic version of evolutionary psychology to kind of explain away this kind of unsatisfied longing. Uh, Eric Weinenberg, for example, suggests that the, the nebulous nature of joy might be an evolutionary advantage if joy arose in a populace. He says, joy's lack of a clear intentional object might have led early humans down Lewisian false paths, such as the pursuit of sex, power and adventure, thinking that those will satisfy this desire, that did not did have direct fitness advantages. Well, this account clearly lacks explanatory power because Weinenberg only suggests that restlessness might be advantageous. Early humans favoured with a chronic, ill-defined restlessness of heart might have outcompeted other humans who were naturally more sedentary and complacent. Yeah. Maybe. Got any evidence one way or the other? You know. um, equally, it might be the case that hominids affected with a chronic, ill-defined restlessness of heart would be outcompeted by humans free from existential ennui. They don't lie abed, awake at night, not getting enough sleep, going, my anxiety is having anxieties. There's Peanuts cartoon here. Weilenberg's hypothesis lacks explanatory simplicity compared to the hypothesis that the direct fitness advantages of sex and power and adventure are self-sufficient explanations for those desires. Indeed, when our ancestors realised that neither sex nor power nor adventure satisfy joy, wouldn't that lessen the significance of these activities in their minds, thereby constituting an evolutionary disadvantage compared to creatures lacking the joy desire? So I'm not particularly taken with the evolutionary psychology account. Indeed, Weilenberg offers no explanation for the appearance of joy in the gene pool, only for its natural selection should it appear. As Gregory Basham concedes in our discussion, these possible explanations are highly conjectural. So Reppert says, natural desires that are unfulfillable on Earth is precisely what we should expect from the point of view of theism. I seriously doubt that we can do this from the point of view of naturalism. Even if a halfway decent looking evolutionary explanation of how such desires could arise were forthcoming from the naturalist which they don't seem to be. Indeed, as Stephen M. Down says, there's a broad consensus amongst philosophers of science that evolutionary psychology is a deeply flawed ex enterprise in and on itself. So Lewis says, I, I find in myself a desire 
finding myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. This sparks the idea of another way of putting the, the argument. Lewis contends that naturalism inevitably generates this disharmony between our hearts and nature. Jeffrey Gordon uh, agrees, concluding that if the universe lacks an objective purpose, man is a creature imbued with passions remarkably inappropriate to the universe in which he is immersed. In Mere Christianity, Lewis observes that we desire other people to conform to the objective moral law and desire ourselves to be innocent before that law. And the desire to fulfil moral duty is arguably absurd on naturalism, but fits comfortably with theism. Indeed, everything is objectively meaningless without objective value on naturalism. In the final analysis, we must choose, I think, between the worldviews of theism and nihilism. As Albert Camus, the French existentialist, said, the absurd is born of this confrontation between the human need and the unreasonable silence of the world. So, formally argued like this, given that humans possess innate, innate existential desires, our existence would be absurd to the extent that it's impossible for any human to have those desires satisfied. But two, humans possess innate existential desires that are probably impossible to satisfy unless God, or something like God, exists. Three, therefore, unless God exists, our existence is probably absurd, at least to a substantial extent. Four, however, our existence is probably not absurd, at least not to a substantial extent. Five, therefore, God probably exists. Now, I would argue that the crucial premise there, premise four, is simply a properly basic belief. It just seems to me that life is not absurd, that life is meaningful. Um, if the satisfaction of our innate existential desires requires or is best explained by the existence of God, then the, the properly basic belief that life isn't absurd places the burden of proof on the nihilist, on the atheist nihilist. Some may profess a willingness to pay the price tag of affirming nihilism, but that affirmation is neither easy to make nor to consistently sustain. But, as atheist Thomas Nagel reminds us, philosophy has to proceed comparatively. Uh, we've only looked at a handful of arguments. Uh, pro-theism. Um, on the one hand, the, the positive case for theism can be reinforced by a negative case against non-theistic worldviews. On the other hand, the overall case for theism must be balanced against the overall case for each of the possible alternatives as well. In the end, there's no kind of shortcut here. We have to, as Nagel says, pr proceed comparatively uh, we need to do the, the spade work to get a sense of the, the breadth of the argument in the round. 
So that's just a handful of arguments out of dozens of reasons for belief in God, defended by professional philosophers today. And next time you hear someone say there's no good reason to believe in God, perhaps ask them, which arguments have they considered? <laughs>